Uh, we've come to the final in a five-part series on the theme of prophecy and God's Word. Uh, in a sense, today's message will be kind of the, the practical application Uh, today will be the practical application really of, of what we've been looking at over the last four weeks. Uh, we did a bit of a, a, a survey of the Old Testament and prophets in the Old Testament. Uh, last week uh, we looked at how God used prophecy uh, in the New Testament uh, to bring about his purposes. And this morning we'll be doing a, a little bit of a survey of uh, some of the New Testament teaching on prophecy and thinking about what that actually means for us today. I want to start with a, 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 a very quick overview of church history, 2,000 years in a few minutes. Uh, but I actually want to start with a, an ancient Christian document called the Didache. Uh, this document dates back to the first century. Uh, some people think that possibly it may even have been written before some of the New Testament letters were even written. And it includes instructions to churches about how they are to go about uh, their life as a church and including how they are to relate to apostles and prophets. Some of the early church fathers uh, actually thought that the Didache uh, should have been included in the New Testament the canon, but the general consensus was while it was a helpful document, it wasn't considered uh, inspired or authoritative on the same level as the New Testament uh, Gospels and letters. But some of the things that it says give us some helpful insights into how the, the first church, the early church, uh, understood uh, prophecy and uh, how they uh, saw the place of prophecy among them. So here's a couple of snippets. Let every apostle who comes to you be received as the Lord, but let him not say more than a day, or if need be, a second as well. But if he says three days, he is a false prophet. And when an apostle goes forth, let him accept nothing but bread till he reaches night's lodging. But if he asks for money, he is a false prophet. But whosoever shall say in the Spirit, Give me money or something else, you shall not listen to him. But if he tell you to give on behalf of others in want, let no one judge him. And let every true prophet who wishes to settle among you, uh, every, every true prophet who wishes to settle among you is worthy of his food. Likewise, a true teacher is himself worthy, like the workman of his food. Therefore, Thou shalt take the first fruit of the produce of the wine grapes and of the threshing floor and of oxen and sheep, and thou shalt give them as the first fruits to the prophets, for they are your high priests. But if you have not the prophets, give to the poor. And then finally, appoint therefore for yourselves bishops and deacons worthy of the Lord, meek men and not others of money, and truthful and approved, for they also minister to you the ministry of the prophets and teachers. Therefore do not despise them, for they are your own men, together with the prophets and teachers. So, uh, 
what could we learn from that, just uh, from our brothers and sisters in the first century? Well, uh, a few things. Uh, it seems that the ministry of the apostles and the prophets was an itinerant one. Uh, they were only to stay for two or three days at the most. Although prophets, once they were proven, they could actually then settle in a location and serve a local church. We saw that obviously there were the opportunists that Jesus predicted there would be. Those who saw this Christian phenomenon as an opportunity to make money. We apply that principle today to all the televangelists. They all go out of business, wouldn't they? If he asks for money, he's a false prophet. And see how the churches were not to depend ultimately on this itinerant ministry of uh, prophets and apostles coming through uh, from time to time. They were to have their own leadership in place. And this leadership was effectively able to provide the same ministry. It seems that they understood that this ministry of apostles and prophets was intermittent and had a temporary nature, but the ministry of elders and deacons is what gave the local church its stability and maturity as a church. First, the first century. Uh, if we scan the next 1900 years of church history, we don't seem to see much of what we might recognise as prophecy, at least in the way that's often described today in uh, charismatic or Pentecostal churches. Uh, from time to time there was something, but often it was a fringe group, and often that group was actually quite heretical. It wasn't until the late 19th century and early 20th century, with the start of the Pentecostal movement, and then following that, the charismatic renewal in many mainline uh, Christian denominations, that spiritual gifts, including prophecy, became more common things. So, that was a very quick survey of church history, but uh, given that, and particularly given that phenomenon of, of looking back over uh, many centuries and saying, was there prophecy there or not? There are probably three ways that we could understand of what's taking place. Uh, one option might be that for whatever reason God allowed these gifts to fade away for much of the church's history and has only revived them more recently. Or one way might be to say that God's plan was for these gifts, including prophecy, to actually cease. And that people who today say that they've been revived are actually wrong or have misunderstood what's happening. Or a third option might be to say, well, actually God never allowed these gifts to cease. He never allowed prophecy to cease. He's always been giving them to the church. But maybe our modern definition of these gifts is actually a bit too narrow. So as we look back over history, we, with our 20th and 21st century goggles on, we don't actually recognise those gifts as God has 
given them to the church. Well, for the record, I stand in that third camp. Uh, as I said last week, the fulfilment of Joel's prophecy on the day of Pentecost was a fulfilment that applies to the church down through the ages, through, uh, through this church age, not just for a few decades in the first century. So, just as everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved in that prophecy still applies, so too does the main message of that prophecy, which was that young and old, men and women, slave and free, will prophesy, still applies. Now, those who take the second view are often called cessationists, the same prophecy. Uh, came to an end as a gift. They often appeal to Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 13. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. For when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. Uh, the view of the cessationist is that this means that prophecy has passed away and has come to an end with the, uh, the completion of the New Testament um, documents. But I think what Paul's talking about here is not when the New Testament is complete and there's no longer any need for uh, ongoing revelation through the apostles and the prophets. But while that principle is actually true, we, we have in the scriptures a sufficient word. And we need to look nowhere else for our knowledge of Jesus Christ and his word. We need to look nowhere else to know what it means to be and live as one of his people. Paul's not making that point here. He's, he's contrasting the nature of love with the practice of prophecy and tongues and words of knowledge. Any prophecy will pass away in the sense that it's spoken for a specific time, for a specific need, and once it's been completed and fulfilled, it no longer applies. Now, for example, if you remember from last week, if we take Agabus's prophecy where he bound, took Paul's belt and bound his hands and feet and said that the owner of this belt will be handed over to the Gentiles. We read that and we don't say, well that's a prophecy that applies to all Christians in all times and all places down through the age. Although the record of that prophecy that we have in the scriptures serves as an ongoing encouragement to us because we see the spirit of that work there. He was unfolding the Father's plan for the gospel of his son to go out to the nations. And Christians who face a similar experience to Paul, who are persecuted for proclaiming the gospel, may be encouraged and know that God is with them in that as he was with Paul. But that particular prophecy passed away. However, the command to love never passes away. 
we'll never reach a point where we we'll say, I've loved enough. Or Jesus' command to love has been fulfilled and is now obsolete. The time will come when Jesus returns and all of these spiritual gifts will no longer be needed. They'll no longer be the norm because we will see him face to face. However, faith, hope and love will continue into the new creation and forever. As we'll see when we actually come to these chapters in 1 Corinthians, um, next week we'll be starting a new series working through 1 and 2 Corinthians. We'll see that love, because it is at the very heart of God's character, that's why love endures. And so love then should be the guiding principle for the use of all spiritual gifts, including prophecy. So, while I, while I believe that the biblical ground for saying that prophecy has ceased is very thin, it's still important that we accept and love our brothers and sisters who hold this view. If they've come to it through a sincere and prayerful approach to now what I know everyone of you here at Bethel on this matter, and it may be that among us we actually cover diversity of views on the role of prophecy among us. But it's not our particular view on spiritual gifts that is our foundation for unity and fellowship. It is the Lord Jesus and his gospel. In our church, uh, our constitution, we have a statement about the continuation of the gifts. But it's in a section on its own, it's not in our doctrinal statements. That means that we see it as a secondary matter. It's not central to the Gospel, it's not a reason to divide or to break fellowship with our brothers and sisters. Well, last week we saw the, the rule for assessing prophets that was there in Deuteronomy. 13 and 18, and uh, we saw from Revelation that all true prophecy must be the testimony of Jesus Christ. John brought these two principles together when he wrote to churches that were struggling and being troubled by false teachers. So he says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this, you know that the, by this you know the Spirit of God, in other words, true prophecy, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and now is in the world already. Uh, false teaching. 
He just simply says a spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. So that covers anyone who either teaches error about Jesus or who simply speaks of other things to the exclusion of him. Now the early church didn't stone prophets as was commanded in the Old Testament. They simply had nothing to do with them as John said in his second letter. That's the wrong passage, so I'll just skip through. John says in 2 John 1, Everyone who goes ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. That's, that's where the writer of the Didache obviously uh, got their understanding as they wrote those words. So the New Testament contains these warnings that enable the church and its leaders to discern and to reject false prophets. But it also contains positive teaching about how those who were recognised as having the gift of prophecy should practice the gift in the church. In his one example in Romans chapter 12. So as in one body we have many members and the members do not all have the same function. So we agreement though many are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith. If service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Now what does it mean to prophesy in proportion to our faith? Well what it does mean is that if I have more faith than you, then I'll be able to give more powerful prophecies than you. In fact, he's not actually referring here to our personal level of faith. It's literally the faith. He's referring here not to our personal trust in Christ, but to the gospel that we receive, to the body of Christian doctrine. So if I believe that the the Lord has given a word that needs to be given to the church. First of all, it's my responsibility to measure that against what's already been revealed in the Scriptures, in the Gospel. So humbly ask, is this a word that's going to point people to the crucified and risen Jesus and to, to serve and help them to grow in maturity in Him? And is this a word that will enable the church to better serve God in his mission to take the gospel to all nations? In a previous church I was in, there was this sign behind the pulpit, Sir, we would see Jesus. Recognise that here. Reminding anyone who stood at that pulpit and addressed the congregation that if what they said did not cause people to love and see and obey Jesus more, 
then I was just wasting their time and everybody else's. That's Burnside Christian Church, now known as Burnside Family Church, in case you're wondering. Peter says, As each has received the gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. So whoever speaks, as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength of God's supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now speak here is not referring just to conversations, but to speaking to the congregation. As a church, we gather with the primary goal of hearing the word of God together. Everything else, our fellowship, our serving, our outreach, all flows out of having received the oracles of God. It's a solemn and sometimes terrifying responsibility to stand up here and trust that the words that come from this pulpit are God's words. So I wonder that James said in James 3, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. So, if prophecy continues, if God has always been giving that gift to his church, and it's something that's actually bigger and broader than our modern definition of someone receiving a spontaneous direct word from God, well, what does it look like? I believe that we can see from the overall teaching of the New Testament that there are three ways in which prophecy is expressed today. Firstly, in the preaching and the teaching and the proclamation of the word by evangelists and pastors and teachers in the church. We saw in Acts 13 that the prophets in Antioch were also teachers. The expounding and teaching of God's word from the scriptures is a supernatural action, not just an academic or not an academic one. It's not just imparting knowledge for people to think about It's a living word for us to believe. And it needs just as much empowerment and direction by the Holy Spirit as what Agabus needed when he was prophesying Paul's arrest. The Protestant reformers used the word prophecy to refer to teaching, to preaching. The English Puritans would hold meetings called prophesyings. They were designed to teach men, to train men, to expound the scriptures, to preach. And those meetings were eventually banned by Queen Elizabeth I because they were considered a threat to the church hierarchy because they were enabling and equipping everyday ordinary people to be teaching and proclaiming the word. Secondly, prophecy is expressed in the speaking of the word of God to one another with the goal of encouragement and discipling one another. We heard in our reading from 1 Corinthians 14 that in a sense all of God's people 
to be involved in the ministry of prophecy in the church. Paul had said in chapter 12, now you are the body of Christ, individually members of it, and God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles and gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Now are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, they all work miracles, they all possess gifts of healing, they all speak with tongues, they all interpret. Now the implied answer there is no, not all are prophets. In the sense in which Agabus was a prophet, however that does not mean that you cannot be still a communicator to God's word, of God's word to God's people. You don't need to have an official role as a prophet to still be involved in prophecy. So in our reading, Paul got us to imagine two scenarios in which a non-believer comes into our church as we're meeting. One, where all are speaking in tongues, in languages that no one can understand except for the speaker. And in that case, they'll think we're all mad. The other scenario is when we are all speaking God's word with clarity, in a language that all can understand and centred on the testimony of Jesus. And in that case, he says, this person will have the secrets of his heart disclosed. He will fall on his face and worship God and declare that God is really among you. We may tend to think that if people witness something that kind of seems supernatural or miraculous, like maybe speaking in tongues, then they'll be more inclined to believe. In fact, what Paul is saying is that something that on the surface appears to be quite ordinary, people speaking words, actually has the power to save people. Because when we speak God's word, it's just as if the Spirit is speaking. The Spirit has empowered and it's just as supernatural as if we pray for someone to be healed and they are healed. The church is a prophetic community. We're to be saturated with God's word, such that when we speak to one another, we're aiming to bring what we know and experience of God's word to our lives, to help one another to take hold of the great and precious promises of God, to encourage, to teach, even to rebuke one another with the Word. If you know Christ, you can do all of that even if there's no preacher in the pulpit. Thirdly, on occasions, the Word may be given to the local church for a specific time and need. Just as in the case of Antioch, the church in Antioch sent aid to their brothers and sisters in Judea and they sent out Barnabas and Paul. There may be times when the Lord will make it clear to us as a church that we need to take some course of action or prepare ourselves for something that he is going to be doing among us or through us. Now this is the area where we need to tread very carefully 
and with discernment. 1 Corinthians 14 29 says, Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and all be encouraged. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. Here Paul is calling the Corinthians to the principle that he states down in verse 40. I remember if I put it there, but I didn't. Uh, he says in verse 40, but all things should be done decently and in order. See, the Corinthian Christians had come out of pagan religions. And these pagan religions also practice a form of prophecy. In that case, in the, the pagan temples, the prophet would lose control. They would fall into a trance and sometimes fall onto the ground and have convulsions. And they would be taken over by whatever spirit it was that was supposed to be inspiring them. In those religions, that was one way that a person would demonstrate their superior spirituality and authority over others. Christian prophecy is not like that, Paul is saying. He says the spirit of prophets are subject to prophets. But what that means is the person actually has control over what they speak. They can start speaking and stop speaking. That means that their prophecy isn't an ecstatic utterance, but it's a careful, thoughtful, prayerful word given in humility. And they need to acknowledge that what they say needs to be weighed or assessed by others before it can be accepted as being from God. And what I think that can mean then is often a word is often only recognised as prophetic as we look back in hindsight, when we see that, yes, what that person said was indeed fitting and has actually borne good fruit and it has actually built up the church and it has actually served the cause of the gospel going out. So, what, what might that actually look like practically in our context here at Bethlehem Christian Church. Well, following the principles of 1 Corinthians 14, if someone believes that they have a word for the church, or even a sense of what he's doing among us, or calling us to, or wisdom for a decision that we're facing, they should come and speak to the elders. And if appropriate, the elders will then share that also with the wider leadership team. They will then do the job of weighing it up, of measuring it against scripture, of praying for discernment, of drawing on what is already known. And they then can make a decision about whether that word is to be shared with the whole church. And then under their leadership, the whole church, just like the church in Antioch, will then need to be committed together to take whatever action is required by that. 
see that kind of process in action, we actually have an example in Acts 15. See, the church in Jerusalem faced the issue of whether the Gentiles who were receiving Christ should be required to follow Jewish practices. And some believers who were Pharisees before they were converted, they said that they should be required to follow Jewish practices. They declared that Gentiles should be circumcised and required to keep the law. So the apostles had a meeting to weigh up this word. They had some debate. They heard the testimonies of Peter and Barnabas and Saul. They were reminded of the fact that the Gospel declares that people are saved through faith in Christ and not by works. And they also read the Scriptures. The Scriptures which predicted that the Gentiles would call on the Lord's name. And the conclusion then after that was, this word is not from the Lord. But in fact the word of Peter and Barnabas and Paul was from the Lord. And so they followed it up with action. 15 verse 22 says, Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. Uh, they sent these men with a letter which contains these words, For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, saying to the Gentiles, you're saved by faith. You don't need to become a Jew first before becoming a Christian. Isn't it good that these men didn't just accept any word that came along? Even if it sounded authoritative, even if it sounded scripturally based, if they did, what would have become of the gospel going to the nations? It's not that the Holy Spirit or God's plan was contingent on their decisions, but this is a picture for us of people who are walking in step with the Holy Spirit. They're trusting that the Sovereign Father would be using them with all their various gifts and abilities to accomplish His plan. So when Paul says, He still love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. And when he says in 1 Thessalonians, do not quench the Spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything, hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. He's not saying that we, that we will or can all be prophets, because as we saw, he said, are all prophets? No, not all are prophets. However, we may all be participants in this gift of prophecy that he has given to the church through the Spirit. We may all pay close attention to the prophetic word of the Scriptures, to know it, to study it, to speak it, to sing it, to teach one another in it. As we do that, we will be the prophetic community that Christ has called us to be. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you 
continue to speak to us through your word, who is your son, the word made flesh, through your written word we have in the scriptures that you have preserved for us through the through the millennia. And we have your word that comes to us uh, living and active all the time as we, as your people, continue to speak your word to one another, as we hear your word taught and proclaimed. We pray, Father, that we will have ears to hear, that will be willing to speak, and that we will be enabled to, when we hear that word, to step out in faith and to obey. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.